0: You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We're getting today to the heart of this letter, this poem, this hymn, this song. Either Paul composes it or he picks up something already. The early church was singing and celebrating about Jesus. And it's an amazing thing. Um, In fact, this passage is something that was studied by and has been studied and continually, constantly studied by theologians and scholars and others to try to figure out what's what and every little word. I had actually a class at seminary, an entire three-credit class that just spent and focused on this little passage for one whole semester. So can you imagine that? Yeah, Um, that's a lot. (laughs) So we're not going to be able to get into all of that today. But we're going to try to hit it with our theme today on joy. And the word joy comes up in this passage again as it runs through the whole book of Philippians. So we're going to start reading from Philippians 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Complete my joy, Paul says in this passage. And we've talked already about joy in uh, this uh, series. Uh, That joy is, well, first of all, the word joy comes up 16 times in this short letter of 104 verses. Just think of that, 16 times, the word to rejoice or to be filled with joy comes up that often. And this is from a person who's in prison while he's writing this letter, right? It's a big deal. Joy is not about circumstances. Joy is actually that long-term perspective. It is a far-sighted view of what God is doing in this world, that God is a purpose and a direction for everything including your life, even in the midst of what might look like a messy time, you've got a goal and a direction. And in fact, joy is the climate, you could say, of heaven. Okay? Do you realize Jesus says that when just one sinner repents, when the lost are found, heaven celebrates and rejoices. God is rejoicing over you. That's what's, what's in front of you. That's the long-term perspective. So it's something, as well, if you can't tell, Jesus talking about the kingdom of God as a party, as a celebration, it's something that you can't hold onto yourself and like, keep it all inside. No, it's got to be let. It's something that you experience and celebrate with others, it's always. Joy is an invitation to be a part of community. And we see that in this section, this whole letter, but in this section about Paul talking about how joy and community go together. So we're going to actually kind of just skim the surface again of this passage. I mean, we don't have 15 weeks of a semester, three hours a week to get through it. But we're going to look at these three points, what gets in the way of joy, what increases joy, and how God actually ensures your joy. Okay. So what gets in the way of joy? Um, have you ever been around someone, and you thought they were talking to you, but then you see those pods in, and you realize they're on the phone with somebody? And then you go like, oh. And then you go like, this has happened with me, with my wife, a couple times. And I'm like, OK, who's she talking to? What is she talking about? And you try to piece it together just by the things that she's saying, right? And you finally can get some clues. Oh, it's Aunt Paula out in California. You know. Oh, it's about you know, what she's doing there. And you can kind of figure it out. You can ask afterwards, you know? but it's always kind of a funny thing. Um, epistles are like that. These letters of Paul are the one side of the communication we've got, but the other side of the conversation we don't have. And so what has to happen often is what's called mirror reading. That is, you have to kind of go like, huh, so Paul brings this up. I wonder why. Oh, I bet this is what was going on. And you put it into the context. So we're going to have to look at a little mirror reading of what Paul's getting at here in this letter. He says in Philippians 2, to complete my joy, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So what's the problem in the Philippian church? Can you tell? They're not of the same mind. They are not in one accord. They're not necessarily all getting along. In fact, later on in the letter, we'll find out these two ladies are named, these two leaders in the church, Euodia and Syntyche, or I don't know if that's the right saying of her name, but. Who knows, right? Okay, But these two women, all Paul says is urge them to get along. (laughs) So what's the problem with you audience and Tyche? The problem is they're not getting along. You can get down to, well, it might be a fight over this or who's in charge of that, but it's really not about that. The problem is they're not getting along. And have you noticed how, sadly, within Christian fellowship, there can be divisions and factions, people not getting along. We, sadly, too often just reflect what our society is going through in a little microcosm. You know, we have our squabbles. It doesn't take a large group of people to have divisions. And so the question comes both here as well as in our society, where are these kind of fractions coming from? And I think there's a couple of layers we're going to go through as we excavate this. Um, I don't think it's because we're going through some tough times in our culture or society, because in some ways, these aren't tough. You know This isn't tough. There have been some tougher times, if you read through the history of our culture, our America, and tougher times in this world. Um, Yeah, things are divided, and there's a lot of factions and divisions. But is it really because times are tough? I mean, I don't think I want to go back to another time, especially at a time before microwaves. (laughs) Right? How would we cook? I don't know. But um, I think our fractures are coming right now more, like I said, because we don't have a long-term, joyful perspective, but a short-term, nearsighted, self-centered perspective. And then all of a sudden, that's where a lot of the fighting comes from. Miroslav Wolf actually, I think, uh, said it well. He said, my sense is that contemporary culture does not have this notion of a definite future toward which we are headed, but rather an empty concept A perpetual novelty has replaced a stable and morally filled concept of the future. It's just one blasted thing after another. And hey, it's something new. It's something new. It's something new. He goes on, this resultant feeling is like driving a fast moving car on the highway. Our experience of life is a blur, not stable images integrated into a larger framework of meaning. We're moving fast, but going nowhere. That's where our culture's at. And sadly, I think even within the Philippian church, it seems like they don't see the bigger picture right now. Paul's been asking them to look at the bigger picture, that their citizenship is in heaven, not in Philippi. That they have a gift from God through Jesus Christ of a sure and certain future. And so you can look at yourself, and if you're not having a lot of joy, not happiness, not comfort, but joy, it might be because... You're just focused on now or self, a little too nearsighted. By the way, that's kind of a good definition of what sin is. In the Reformation era and in the Middle Ages, uh, there was a Latin phrase a number of theologians used for what sin is. It's called incurvatus and say. I think that's a slide, is it not? Yes. OK. I know. it's Latin. so it's like, what? In curvatus and say, it means to be curved in on yourself." Have you ever been around people that you go like, "Oh my gosh, everything they talk about is really reflected back on them." Yeah, that's, that's what's going on in our society. And um, the more uh, and in fact, you've got an entire now culture, a thousand advertisements a day. Hundreds of pundits every day yelling and screaming at you to focus on yourself, to pamper yourself, to assert yourself, to praise yourself, to indulge yourself. No wonder we're having factions, because I'm just thinking about me, and you're just thinking about you, and what I want, I'm trying to get you to feel my needs or my desires, or just that I want to be in control. Well, that's going to cause problems, right? But I guess the question comes down even farther. I think Paul gets, peels off that layer of having a very nearsighted self-focused to the next when he says in Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now, As I was studying this, I thought that word for conceit is so fascinating. It's the Greek word kenodoxia. And kenos is for empty. Doxia is glory. And glory in the, uh, the, the Hebrew Bible, the understanding of what glory is, God's glory is this weightiness, this presence, this substantiality that just amazes you. And so it's kind is like a contradiction in terms. Empty glory, vacuous weightiness, <laughs> no substance, That's the human problem. Human beings have this innate hunger, this emptiness, this this desire for something to fill themselves up with. We are starved for attention. We have a radical insecurity about who we are, and we have a mask of confidence on the outside. T.S. Eliot, in his famous uh, poem, The Wastelands, talks about how we are hollow men stuffed with straw. And we keep stuffing more straw in. And it doesn't really fill us up. So the Bible, that big picture that the Bible gives us, says that we were made to be imbued with God's glory. We were created in God's image to reflect His glory, to be filled with His glory. And when we turned away and wanted our own, we found out there's nothing to it. And we don't feel real. We desperately are looking now for everyone and anything to validate us, to make us feel like we're worth it. I need to feel good about myself. And so I try to justify myself by my job performance, by my grades, by my looks, by my likes and it's all straw that we're stuffing ourselves with you know we have you ever heard and said about somebody boy are they filled with hot air that's kenodoxia that's that arrogant emptiness and that's what really pride is when we talk about that in the bible pride is not some filling, full thing. It's actually a feeling of emptiness, but it's trying to cover it up. So Lewis means, I think, writes an amazing uh, passage on what pride is. He says, pride is the grand illusion, the fantasy of fantasies, the cosmic put on, the fantasy that we can make it as little gods, leaving us empty at the center. Once we decide we have to make it on our own, we are attacked by the demons of fear and anxiety, we are worried that we cannot keep our balance as long as we carry no more inside our empty heart than what we can put there. We suspect that we lack the power to become what our pride makes us think we are, so we learn to swagger, to bluff, to use symbols to cover up our fears that we lack substance. We force other people to act as buttresses for the shaky ego that pride created by emptying our soul of God and other words. In the words of God's love song, we became, become arrogant. Vanity is emptiness. A person who is empty at the center of life is vain, and a vain person is almost always arrogant. Every new situation calls forth questions. What can I get out of this to support the need of my ego for power and applause? As he encounters new people, he wonders, how can the person contribute to my need for applause and power? So why do we lack joy? Because we are self focused, nearsighted, we don't see the big picture that God has for us, and then we keep filling ourselves with stuff that doesn't fill us at all. It's just straw. Pride. Right? Pride. Pride. Absolutely. That's what does it. And you lose your joy. So, what brings us joy? Paul continues then. In Philippians two, do nothing from selfish ambition or chaosia, vain conceit, but in humility, count yourselves more significant, count others more significant than yourselves. What increases joy, according, is something that's maybe not expected and not necessarily lauded. Especially, what's interesting is that Greek word for humility here is ταπαινοφροσυνε, φροσυνε, which comes from Humble mind. It's having an attitude of gentleness and humility and deference to others. And in the Greco-Roman world, that word was used derogatorily for that person, Um, never in a positive way. It wasn't something you wanted. The only people who were really this word were slaves, the lowest rung of society. And then you get to the New Testament, and this word, along with other derivatives and the whole Bible, it occurs 270 times almost every time in positive light. You can't get much bigger of a contrast between the way the world thinks things should be and the way that the gospel and the church say and what Christ says it should be. What is it, though? I think too many people think humility is something that it is not. Somehow they think, oh, humility means looking down at yourself, cutting yourself down, uh, self-efface, oh, no, I can't, no, I'm not good, I'm terrible. You know, actually, humility is not looking at yourself. It's not looking down at yourself. It's not looking at yourself. It's looking elsewhere. You see, um, Paul says, let each of you in Philippians 2.4 look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He doesn't say don't. Don't have any thoughts about yourself. But he just says, put it in perspective and balance. Give deference to others. You know, the person who, put it this way, the person who thinks and is cutting himself down, herself down, all the time, continually beating themselves up in front of other people, afraid to take any compliments, pushes them off, can't accept any gifts or anything from anyone, that person is actually a very self-centered individual as well, just in a very negative way. That is not humility. Paul says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. John Wooden, the um, great basketball coach of UCLA, um, legendary, said, your greatest joy definitely comes from doing something for another, especially when it is done with no thought of something in return. You see how humility and joy go together? And Mother Teresa says, uh, a joyful heart is inevitable result of a heart burning with love. In other words, you love others, you give to others, you care about others. Um, Our campus ministry hopefully will be going on a mission trip uh, in March to Guatemala to work with a mission uh, and an orphanage there. And I have a feeling for the students who go, many of them will say that's one of the greatest weeks of their lives. Not because it because they got to go, you know, ride roller coasters and any, but because they were serving other people and seeing the difference that they make, and they will be filled with a lot of joy just because of that. Now you might be going like, um, okay, John, but is this just a kind of a pep talk, a self-help thing that you're saying? You know, you focus on others, you'll have joy. You focus on self, you won't. No, because I think God is saying, this is the only way to really live. And this is the way I set everything up. And this is how I ensure that you will have joy. Because we get to the heart of the matter now in this poem that I mentioned, where it says, have this attitude, which was, is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mindset. That Jesus had, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to grasp. That is, being God didn't mean I can get whatever I want whenever I want it, but as it says in Philippians 2, 78, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Emptied. Same word, keno, kenos. He empties himself. Jesus had all the glory of God himself. Jesus had it all, everything you could ever want. And he lets go of all of it. He empties himself of all of that to become your servant. He is found in human nature. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So he gives everything up, pours out his entire life, sacrifices it all. It's the opposite of conceit, of that vain glory, of that kenodoxia. He had the doxia, all the glory, and he empties it for your sake. He takes the lowest, the least, the last, the place nobody ever wanted, the worst, to give you the best, to give you his all. And his joy now is having you. That's what he rejoices over more. Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. It wasn't the joy of, oh, it's going to be over in a minute, (laughs) 10 minutes, three hours. The joy was knowing what it would do for you. So Jesus doesn't show us how to live. He lives in our place. That is extremely important. It's not like, you better be just like Jesus, then you'll have joy. No, Jesus gives you his joy, the joy of eternity, so that you can now share it with others. He gives you his life. He gives you his love. You are absolutely, completely forgiven. There is a now certain and sure future before you. The long-term perspective of life is that you have it all. You will have it all. There is nothing that you will miss. And that's why Paul can even say, (laughs) when he is in prison in a Roman dungeon, dirty, disgusting, you know, you name it, it's not a pleasant place, not getting fed, not being cared about, no sense of justice there, he can still talk about joy. And bring that word up 16 times in this short letter. Because he knows his life is not a dead end, but actually Jesus' life has been death's end. He has put to death death itself through his life and open up a new possibility for him to live purposefully and joyfully now, as well as knowing what he has for the future. That's why Ernst Kasemann said salvation does not simply mean like a state. I'm going to arrive at. No, it is an endless path which has been thrown open to us, a path which is ceaselessly characterized by forgetting of that which lies behind and straining forward to that which lies ahead. It's the whole idea that you're going to keep growing. Eternity is not a static state of, now I'm here. What do I do? I'm bored. It is a state of God's creativity and joy Where you get to serve and love and be loved and be served and be amazed, time and again. I can't really do justice to this passage, but I can be astounded by it. And so can you. Don't just plan now, you know, for this week, next, your retirement, your next vacation. You know, don't plan for um, just a family, see God's plans for you and what that means. Because today, you are already moving one step closer to that eternity. And God is moving toward you in Jesus Christ, the God who is to come, is coming for you. And he is going to be filled with joy. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this message today. You know how our world right now just seems like a hopeless place, that all we can look at is what's next. We're in kind of almost a survival mode. We're filled with fears and anxieties over what's going on right now, Lord. Give to us that eternal perspective, that long-term perspective of your coming kingdom, Lord Jesus, and what you accomplished through your death and resurrection, that you are the name above every name, and nothing can but only bow to you and acknowledge you as Lord. You are the one who holds all things together, Lord Jesus. You are the one who is the goal of all of creation, and we will be glorified because you have given us your glory and welcomed us into it. We are amazed at all these things, Lord. We're astounded by it. There are many people here right now who are experiencing hardship, Lord, and it's so easy for us. who aren't, to just kind of brush that off. Help us, Lord, to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. And, Lord, we lift them up to you, that you would give them the long-term perspective, but also bring your healing presence to them right now in whatever condition they are in, Lord. We pray your will is done in their lives, and you are glorified that you give them the fullness of life, the abundant life that you so have offered us all, Lord Jesus. We, uh, we continue to think of all the students who are grieving the loss of Graham McGrath, a 19-year-old Lord, tragically taken. Lord, you know how many of the students are just shocked by someone so young. Unexpectedly. And uh, I pray, Lord, that you would open up opportunity for them to know, to know your peace that passes all understanding, that to know your presence in their life, and that you would use the students here, Lord, who know you already, to share that that hope and that joy with them, and that you would use all the Christians at FGCU to share your love and mercy and compassion and walk alongside those who are grieving there. We lift up to you, O Lord. Um, Just uh, those recovering from Hurricane Adalia, we uh, too too much know what it's like to go through the eye of the storm. We pray, Lord God, that you would just uh, bring your peace to them and all the resources necessary, Lord, to rebuild their lives, but that they find their ultimate hope and joy in you. Lord God, I pray that you would uh, be with us as we uh, prepare to receive um, the gift of yourself, Lord Jesus, as you offer yourself to us. We're amazed that you would want to pour your goodness, your love, your glory into our lives, your very self in the Lord's Supper, and that's what you still do. You offer yourself, Lord. You are the greatest gift. We're unworthy to receive, Lord. We are those broken vessels, we are those who just know, um, you know, we are sinners. And yet, Lord, if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just and forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we thank you for that gift, that we are forgiven through what you've all done, Lord Jesus. It's all in your name we pray these things. And as we now give of our offerings today, Lord, we just offer our lives as well in service to you that we may focus on your kingdom and your will first and everything else to fall in place behind your kingdom. All this we pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.